This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to RAND's Distinguished Speaker Series. I'm Iao Katagiri, Director of Community Relations. Our topic is community resilience, and it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Anita Chandra. Anita Chandra is a senior policy researcher and director of RAND's Behavioral and Policy Sciences Department. She is a professor at the Pardee RAND Graduate School. Her background is in public health, child and adolescent development, and community-based participatory research and program evaluation. She received her doctorate in public health from Johns Hopkins University and her master's in public health from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Chandra has led projects with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to examine community capacity in public health preparedness. She is leading several studies on community resilience, one in Los Angeles County, another in Washington, D.C., and another in the Gulf States region. She is working on a project in China on the role of voluntary associations, philanthropic organizations, and community groups in disaster response and recovery. She has just started a project to develop a well-being index for the city of Santa Monica based on its successful bid for a Bloomberg Philanthropies Mayor's Challenge grant in 2013. In her Los Angeles County Resilience Project, Dr. Chandra has engaged community members, particularly young people, in program evaluation and translating research findings into action. Her Santa Monica Wellbeing Project will engage a large cross-section of community, business, and neighborhood groups. The city intends to use the Well-Being Index as a data-driven lens through which to evaluate future policy and resource allocation decisions. And now, please join me in welcoming Dr. Anita Chandra. Thanks, Yao. This is really fantastic. I um, really enjoy talking about this topic, not because I like talking about disasters and emergencies, but I really like talking about what it means for community connections, what it means for community organizations, how it really involves every single resident, every single member, not only in thinking about disaster response and recovery, but in really thinking about how you can transform community. And that's really going to be the theme of today. I really want to challenge folks in the audience, and I think we're going to hopefully have a robust discussion and, and some questions and some real um, thought to this, to not simply think about kind of your individual roles, your individual preparedness, and, and I think Yao set this up beautifully, but to think about, hey, am I connected to my neighbor in ways that are meaningful? Am I connected to a community organization that could support me and that who am I could support if an event happened? Do I have a resilience mindset? Am I resourceful if tragedy of any type strikes? Whether it's um, an earthquake, which obviously is very salient, 
salient for folks in this community. A hurricane, which was very salient um, where I grew up in the, the south. I lived through about 20 hurricanes growing up. Um, but also things that we don't um, always typically include in disaster. Economic downturn, changes in a community, community violence. So I really want to challenge us to start thinking about what that really means, um, what that means for the disaster context, but also what that means for broader community policy, broader social policy. And I'll talk a little bit about those themes. We've got a lot of people in the audience who represent many different types of sectors, which is fantastic for a community resilience discussion. Each of you has roles and responsibilities and contributions, and articulating those things is super important for resilience. We've also got a lot of folks also from our Los Angeles project, which I'll talk about um, in a little bit. These are all very strong team efforts and sharing a little bit about Rand's contribution to that, but really the broader way that we engage with community stakeholders, I hope, really comes out from today's discussion. Before um, we sort of get into the nuts and bolts of things, I did want to just show a little short video. So as Yao talked about, what does RAND do? We want to make sure that we're doing objective analysis, and you see a lot of our reports out there and our research briefs, and we testify in front of Congress, and maybe somebody will say, well, RAND said, then we should do it, maybe. Um, but really what we want to make sure is that some of the research that we are kind of tracking and leading and developing with community stakeholders is actually actually used. And in the context of community resilience, it's not enough to have a big discussion about theory or concepts. That's important and that really excites a lot of us um, in the organization. And resilience is very conceptually messy, as many people have heard me say who know me um, uh, over the last several years. But really to make this work really operational, really actionable, um, really applied. And so one of the things that we did was develop an online e interactive community resilience training. And I'm going to show you just a brief video that kind of sets the stage for the training. And as people are interested, certainly I can point you to the longer training. But we're trying to develop guidance and tools that can actually be operationalized in the community. You've got an emergency plan. You've got enough food, fuel, and water to last three days. What happens on day four? What about day 104 or year four? How will your community bounce back from a disaster over the long term? Emergency preparedness gets you through the immediate response, but it takes a comprehensive strategy for community resilience to ensure that your community survives and thrives over the long term after a major disaster, whether natural or man-made. What is community resilience? It's the ability to mitigate and withstand the stress of disaster, recover in a way that restores normal functioning, and apply lessons learned from past responses to better withstand future incidents. Why focus on community resilience now? Disasters have become more common and more costly. From the 1980s to the 2000s, the number of disasters increased from 237 to more than 600. During the same period, annual disaster assistance increased tenfold, from less than $10 billion to almost $100 billion. And that doesn't include the human cost of displaced families, disrupted social and economic networks, trauma, and stress. Some communities have been hit by multiple disasters. New Orleans was still recovering from Hurricane Katrina when the Deepwater Horizon oil spill hit the Gulf states five years later. These consecutive disasters made recovery much more challenging. For example, 
Oil workers displaced by the spill and Katrina survivors still living in temporary housing were forced to compete for scarce resources. Not all disasters happen suddenly. Droughts in the Midwest have disrupted the farming industry, devastating communities that rely on that business. Economic disaster caused by the financial and housing crisis of 2008 slowly crippled entire communities, leaving neighborhoods full of abandoned homes and local jobless rates in the double digits. How is community resilience different from emergency preparedness? We'll answer this question in more detail later in the training. But for now, two key factors can begin to illustrate the differences. First, emergency preparedness has not sufficiently engaged the full range of community organizations that participate in response and recovery. Emergency planners can't go it alone. Resilience is relationship-based and brings a range of new organizations to the table. Second, emergency planners need to be more creative about resources, given the complexity and overlapping nature of disasters. That means using resilient strategies that take emergency preparedness out of its silo and link it to community development and well-being. It also means accounting for assets at all levels, from households to organizations to the entire community. Community resilience is everyone's responsibility. Organizations, businesses, and local governments must work together to assess their resources and create plans to ensure the community is ready to withstand the stress and strain of disaster. But it starts with you. What can you do? By completing this training, you'll learn about community resilience, including how it differs from traditional emergency preparedness. You'll also be able to recognize actions your organization can take to build resilience, both within the organization and by connecting with others. Who can benefit from this training? This training provides an introduction for many different types of organizations. Businesses, faith-based organizations, hospitals, health clinics, and other health agencies, mental health providers, schools, and universities, civic and volunteer groups, fire, police, emergency management, and other first responders, local government agencies, public health departments, and all types of nonprofit agencies. All of these groups can benefit from learning about community resilience. This training will give you the knowledge and skills you need to build resilience. Soon, you'll be able to help your community take emergency preparedness out of its silo and plant the seeds of resilience throughout your community. So that just gives you kind of a sense of what are we starting from in terms of our definition of resilience, how the kind of orientation and the move away from emergency preparedness has started to shape how we think about all sorts of organizations around the table and their roles and responsibilities. Um, this map sort of shows you kind of that resilience really is about a couple of levels of interconnections in a community. First of all, it's about those individuals connecting to other individuals and about that neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor connection. But it's also about this wide, diverse network of organizations in a community that really are the fabric and the foundation that not only have something to say and contribute in preparedness and mitigation and thinking about climate change and adaptation, but they are the seeds of really what contributes to community recovery. Um, we are always talk in sort of preparedness that you wait 
at least three days, if not a week, for federal funding to come in or federal resources to come in. All disasters are local. Well, this really exemplifies that network that needs to be able to be activated, that needs to be able to be nimble, not only a disaster, but by connecting these organizations in between disasters, you get much more of an agile framework of how to respond, how to understand the assets of these organizations, not simply city government, but city government working with a range of non-governmental organizations. We know, and we've studied this a lot, that when you look at communities side by side who've basically borne the same brunt of disaster, and I often give this example from Hurricane Katrina, and you look sort of side by side at what happened in New Orleans and what happened in sort of the Gulf South part of Mississippi around Gulfport, Bay St. Louis. The devastation was the same and if not worse in Mississippi. Um, the economics were the same in terms of sort of social and economic justice issues, social and economic poverty. But what was the difference in those communities that were able to recover more quickly? It's in these connections. So in Mississippi, you had a lot of individuals who knew how to leverage across organizations. You had individuals who were connected to organizations, and that made all the difference. So when people sort of talk about resources and funding, that's critically important. But all things being equal, Mississippi didn't have um, any more money than New Orleans and in Louisiana. We can talk about sort of political issues about how that money um, was pushed through but they had the connections, and that really made the difference. And that has made the difference globally in terms of, if you look at Indonesia, if you look at what's happening in the Philippines after the typhoon, those neighborhoods, those communities that are able to really exploit and leverage those connections are much more robust. And that's a critical principle with community resilience and in acknowledging that intersection between individuals and organizations. The other piece of community resilience, which is really interesting and really exciting, I think both at the local level, but also at a kind of a national policy level and a global policy level, is that it is taking, as you saw, the emergency preparedness conversation out of the silo and really linking it to ongoing community well-being. Um, and you've been hearing about that with the Santa Monica Project, but the community development work. And so emergency preparedness is not something that's sort of discrete, that if I'm an emergency preparedness provider or if I have that hat or if I represent FEMA, I'm the only one who sort of should care about emergency preparedness. But rather, if I am an entity that cares about the economic development, the health and well-being of the community, the social development of the community, I need to embed sort of emergency preparedness principles into the conversation. And only when those things are connected do you really have plans for long-term recovery. We're doing work right now post-Hurricane Sandy in New York and New Jersey, and you see the communities that have sort of taken on this as an opportunity to think about innovation in the post-disaster experience. Maybe that means reshaping human service provision. Maybe that means really thinking about climate change adaptation and sustainability and building back in a different way. I mean, New York is finally having this realization that they're actually a coastal community and that they can have um, sort of the learnings of New Orleans and Mississippi and other places and to realize, wait a minute, we have built all wrong. 
Um, we have our hospitals too close to the water. We don't have generators. We don't have plans for um, the roofs in a way that's really going to be um, adaptive. And so how do you think about community development and embed emergency preparedness in that conversation? That's a critical piece of resilience. And it's no small feat at the federal policy level that we're having these conversations. Um, what is really exciting is that we have a lot of national strategy now that's almost saying the same thing. And for anybody, and I, I live in D.C., that doesn't happen very often, and the window doesn't um, open that often for these conversations to happen. But you are seeing that people are starting to embrace these kinds of concepts about mitigation and withstanding and recovery and how do you connect economic, social, and health development to emergency preparedness so that we actually have a more holistic way of thinking about disaster response and recovery. So you're seeing that from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You're seeing that from the Homeland Security folks and FEMA. You're seeing that from the White House. And what that affords is actually a much more visionary look at how do you think about community development and community health promotion. So that resilience paradigm shift, both in terms of that interconnection slide and this intersection of kind of well-being and community promotion with emergency preparedness, has really changed the dialogue about how we think about our community vulnerability to disasters of all shapes and stripes. The other thing that community resilience and these conversations has raised for us is many-fold. And this is what is interesting both at a research level and people like me who like to study lots of things, but really at a broad social policy level. So we're thinking now about, okay, first of all, we don't have unlimited funds. We all know this. Um, and as you saw in the video, we're seeing a changing scope and scale of disasters. And quite simply, we can't pay for the next onslaught of any kind of event. Um, so there are a lot of questions about where do we put our dollars? Do we put our dollars in kind of acute response, making sure that we build back exactly the same? Do we put our dollars in mitigation and preparedness and thinking about sustainability and what does that look like? There's all sorts of interesting questions here, not just financial, but also ethical. And so we've seen a lot of communities struggling with trying to rebuild after a disaster, whether it was um, here in this state in terms of of Northridge or other kinds of earthquakes and other kinds of events that you've experienced, the wildfires that certainly rage on. Um, how do you think about community rebuild? What is a community owed? How much money are they owed? It's all sorts of interesting ethical and financing questions that abound when you th start thinking it about it and putting it in this frame. We've also been sort of thinking about a lot about how do you kind of Think about the role of non-governmental organizations. Who's responsible in public-private partnerships for that rebuilding? Is it all dollars that comes from government sources? And if so, how much? And who gets those dollars? All of these questions are abounding now that we're sort of breaking that emergency preparedness conversation out of a very narrow focus and really thinking about what happens to a community when a disaster hits. Um, that is a very long period of recovery. There are estimates that have said that every disaster on average takes about 11 and a half years of recovery time. And those estimates don't actually account for all of the psychological impacts and the human impacts that we're just starting to quantify, monetize, figure out. If you really take that into account, knowing the social costs, the monetary costs, 
we're not prepared because we haven't really thought about it in this community development framework. So these are all sorts of questions that people at RAND, like me and colleagues um, in many different institutions, are thinking a lot about. Um, and it's raising a lot of questions about how we organize our services, where do we put the money, who's owed what, how do we care for vulnerable populations. All of these questions are emerging as part of the community resilience discussion. I want to highlight a particular project that's certainly um, proximal to this audience. And this is a project that we've been doing, I guess, for now probably about three plus years. And it's the Los Angeles County Community Disaster Resilience Project. Now, that's a mouthful. Um, but I, what I will say, and I know I see some people um, in the crowd from, um, from the large collective that we've pulled together across many different organizations, it's the first national project that's really testing community resilience development. And so that's something for this community and this broader community of Los Angeles to be exceptionally proud of because other communities, other locations have followed suit. So another project that has just emerged, we're entering year two, is a project that I help lead in Washington, D.C. called Resilient D.C. There are other projects like this abounding. But let me just talk briefly about the L.A. project just to give you an example of how we're kind of going about applying these principles and applying these philosophies of community resilience to really local application. This is um, a, an example of some of the campaign, and I'll, I'll point out the people who are responsible for that campaign in, in a minute. Um, but this is really a collaborative, not simply of RAND, but really led by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health, uh, UCLA, Loma Linda University, the Emergency Network of Los Angeles, which for many of you who um, aren't familiar, that's basically the Los Angeles VOAD, the Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster. It's a national sort of network, and that's the local affiliate of that national network. So as you can see, this is kind of one of the principles that I've just been talking about. Emergency preparedness begins with a hello, right? And so this idea that it's not about the kit, that's great. That's important. The kid's only going to take you so far. If Bob or Sue next door doesn't know you and you don't know Bob or Sue, you're out of luck. And we know this because we know that not only are you out of luck in terms of your material needs, but in terms of kind of really response and recovery and the emotional well-being um, and your ability to kind of rebound as a community, you need those neighborhood connections. And what's interesting about that is we've, we've taken a lot of stock in the last 20 years that we're becoming a little bit more individualistic, more separated from our neighbor. We're always on our smartphones. Well, this is actually returning us perhaps to first principles and thinking a little bit more thoughtfully about what it means to be community, how we connect with each other. So just something as simple as um, preparedness begins with hello actually has a lot going on underneath that, and that's really a guiding um, philosophy of the Resilience Project, and we have this in many languages, um, particularly in L.A. So we always say that, and LACCDR is our shorthand for that Los Angeles County Community Disaster Resilience Project. Maybe one day we'll come up with something a little shorter, but it covers the bases. It's about what we say is moving from me. So you've heard everybody say it's not just about individual preparedness. I'm pro having three days of water supply and having enough to get by. It's just not good enough. This is really what it's about. It's a moving from me to we. Um, and it is about a couple of different levels. And these are the levels that we've embedded into this, basically, this intervention and this analysis. We have a different way of assessing and addressing community vulnerabilities. We actually have an asset mapping component of this, which I can talk about in a little bit. We're really focused on developing community partnerships. 
all different types of partners, new partners, people who haven't talked to each other, all sorts of different um, relationships. So it wasn't unusual for like emergency preparedness folks to talk to you know fire and police and maybe talk to public health. But how often are those guys talking to private business? Um, how often are they talking to the faith-based community? So we're trying to switch it up and make sure that people are really aware of their community assets and are really aware of their community partners and what they can bring. There's a big focus on community engagement, training, elements related to education, and we have one of our um, co-leads on this is Ken Wells from UCLA, who's done a lot of work in the community around mental health and community engagement. This is a critical component of this, and we're basically developing tools and materials and really operationalizing this in many communities. And then it is about social connections. It is about cr changing the network so that, hey, who are the five people you can rely on if disaster hits, would somebody let you stay at their house? What does your social network look like? How are you rethinking the social connections? We actually developed basically our eight levers of community resilience at RAND because we weren't satisfied. We were taking all of this sort of definitional work and, um, and people have heard me say this a lot, you can sit around the table a lot with researchers, with federal policymakers, and talk about definitions till you're blue in the face. And we we enjoyed that, but we needed to move past it. And so we came to this idea that we needed an operational framework, thing, something that communities could test. And so you see that if you picked up the little green infographic when you came in, our roadmap to resilience, there's a little um, picture on a seesaw of eight levers of resilience. Well, we actually um, focus on all eight levers of resilience, but there are four, four levers, really, that we think are mutable, that we think we can sort of intervene on in the more immediate. Not that it's not important to make real dents on poverty and social justice issues or make sure that people have access to health and social services. But there are four areas that we think people can really make change on. One is this partnership piece. So as I've mentioned, this idea that government is really connected to a range of non-governmental organizations, we know that that matters when we've looked kind of in these side-by-side -side comparisons. When you see communities where government is over here and all of those organizations that are representing the non-governmental sector over there, it's no good. When they are better integrated, when they are better connected, we see real value in that. And so how do we leverage and optimize that? The LA County Department of Public Health knew they had an issue, and Alonzo Plow, um, as when he was leading emergency preparedness and response there, saw the H1N1 response and said, we are not connected as we should be with community organizations that actually meet the needs of vulnerable populations, and we need to do better. So this is really a lever that we really focus on. And it's not just about, okay, everybody get around a table. It's about what do you bring? What do I bring? What are you going to bring? What can I count on you to bring? Um, are you going to be reliable? How are you going to be reliable? Are you going to be reliable in recovery? Are you going to be reliable in long-term recovery three years from now? It's about really thinking and shaping the partnership discussion. So that's a lever that we focus on, and it's a real impetus for the L.A. work. Another lever is engagement. We know that vulnerable populations are disproportionately affected by disaster. What disaster does is it puts a microscope on a lot of social inequity and social justice issues, but it also gives an opportunity for innovation and a way to integrate those populations in new ways. So we focus on that in engagement, and that's really a, a key principle of this work. If you don't take care of the most vulnerable in your community, not only is that not a good thing for their health and well-being, but you're never going to recover. And if you care about costs, you're going to be paying 
for a long time. So thinking about engagement is really important. Another lever is education, but not education like many of, I think, folks like us who are really trained in emergency preparedness, where we focus on risk communication. That's important. We want to make sure that we get the alerts that something is happening. We want to make sure that we can communicate that in languages and cultures that are appropriate. But what's the communication around recovery? What's the communication that let you know that the community is getting back on its feet? What's the communication that starts to really speak to the emotional health of a, of a community? That's a different education, and nine times out of ten, emergency preparedness um, staff have not been trained in that kind of education model, and that's really what makes a community feel whole again, what makes a community recover. Um, I, as I mentioned, I did a lot of work in New Orleans. Well, um, it took a while. We would go back, and we have some people here who also have worked in New Orleans. Every year you kind of see people kind of getting back on their feet after Katrina. About five years, things were pretty good. And I said, well, they just won the Super Bowl, um, and this is excellent. And then the oil spill hit. And so how do you educate around that? Here in this community, as you think about wildfires and earthquake preparedness, and how do you think about education if something bad hits or you can't recover? Thinking about that long term of education is a key principle. And then finally, not surprisingly, it's this idea of self-sufficiency, but not just individual self-sufficiency. Do you have neighborhood connection? Do you have neighborhood community? Do you have community self-sufficiency that my community can really respond. My community is agile. My community is flexible. And this is sort of that kind of that idea of the resilience mindset. Does your community feel that it can be resourceful? Not because it has more or less resources in sort of an aggregate sense in terms of economics and social, but can you band together and kind of make hay essentially with what you have? And so that sort of piece of self-sufficiency is something that we work on both in communication and in training um, as the, the communities are really proceeding with resilience work. So this is what we're trying to get to in LA County, and this is what hopefully we'll try and get to in other communities. We want to focus on neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor reliance and organizational readiness because those were not that high when we surveyed people at the start of this project. This is the base. We want individuals and families ready to prepare and respond to disaster. But that's not enough. That's foundational. We want people who can say, I can rely on my neighbor. And in places where people um, are always in their car or not connected as much as they should or living in a condo building or an apartment building, how often nowadays do people feel like, I know the person next door or I know three people um, living next to me? Um, we want to know that there are people who really feel that they have something to contribute, and not simply people who are part of community emergency response teams and volunteers in the usual sense, but all sorts of really cool ways that people contribute. We're seeing this more and more in recovery. People really bringing their skills to the table, whether it's cooking meals, making sure that they can provide psychological first aid to their neighbor. These are the kinds of volunteers that we're looking for. Organizational readiness, ability to not only get back on a feet, continuity of operations, people talk a lot about organizational readiness, but also that they are, you can rely on them. Do you have one organization that you really feel looks out for you? Not your, necessarily your employer. Is it a church? Is it a social organization? Is it a, one kind of organization that really knows what you're about and what you need and could be there to respond? And then making sure those organizational ties are critical. So that's where we're trying to get to, these building blocks to really get to resilient communities. And that's moving beyond emergency preparedness because we're layering on a lot of other levels of community connection. 
So what's exciting about this project is we're going to really do a little bit of a comparison and say, look, what happens in communities that kind of do the same old, same old, which is basically preparedness with a little bit of enhancement, a little bit of juice we've put into it, and then eight communities, eight neighborhoods that are very distinct um, that are really proceeding with resilience development principles and all the things that I've laid out. And so the usual preparedness are kind of doing what usually gets done. They're doing the kind of brown book, traditional emergency preparedness. They're going about their business as we would expect. And then in the communities that are doing resilience, they are using a toolkit that we're developing. Um, they're using asset mapping. They're using something called Sahana that some of my colleagues have been really work, um, working on to develop so that communities can actually take stock of what they have and not rely on sort of secondary data sources um, just with government information, but really localized information about the cultural and community assets. And so all of these pieces are being tested in eight neighborhoods, and it's really exciting because we're across spas, service um, provision areas in um, L.A. County. We are looking at communities that are a little bit more rural and remote in L.A. County, as well as communities that are more urban, and really comparing them side by side. So that's kind of where we are in the L.A. project, and I'm happy to sort of share more about what we're finding and what we're learning and point you to, to more resources. But I did want to sort of conclude and, and share a little bit about where critical questions are going in this agenda. What are the things that as a society, as a community, as a research community, as a policy community, we're really grappling with? And these are the questions kind of that are emerging of our day. One of them is how much will this cost? What, what, do we, what does it mean to be recovered from a disaster when you really take into account anniversary periods, um, psychological consequences of disaster. There are people, certainly, when you had your anniversary about a week ago, that really um, stirred up lots of emotions and feelings about the events of, of that period of time. What does that mean? Is that community recovered? What, how are we really going to bench that, and how are we going to put cost to that? Who's responsible for paying for it? These are all really important research and social policy questions, and they're not going away anytime soon, as you saw with every time there's a disaster, there's a fight in Congress, or there's a fight in state legislature, or there's a fight amongst funders. How do we think about that? Um, where do we put the money? Do we put it in kind of resilience development and recovery thinking, or do we put it so that all that money gets um, thrown in at the acute response period. These are really critical questions that communities are grappling with, and if they haven't had a disaster, they're going to have to grapple with um, as they plan for the next um, event or the potential next event. A critical area of real interest is how do you think about nonprofits and who's reliable and who can be counted upon and who's really got the assets and can they actually leverage them and can they leverage them for other constituents in a community? That's a critical question. Everybody's talking about social media. How do you think about sort of Twitter feed? Can you get a sense of where risks lie in a community based on Twitter or Facebook? Can you also get a sense of whether a community has recovered? Is Twitter a way to connect people? And is it valid and reliable? How do you think about that? And then really the kind of the real fun stuff is some of the stuff that we're going to be doing um, with the city of Santa Monica around well-being, kind of development and measurement and how do you think about it, is that community resilience really gives us an opportunity. As, as awful as disasters are, it provides an innovation lab. It provides an opportunity to have different conversations about how 
all the systems are structured, the economic system, the social system, the health system. And so it gives us a conversation point to really explore these topics. And these are topics that are getting the kind of interest of the foundation community, the larger philanthropic community, the private sector community. So obviously Santa Monica got one of the big prizes from the Bloomberg Award, which was fantastic. And that's really a nod to innovation like this. But also Rockefeller um, has designated 100 resilient cities. Now they've only identified 33 awardees. Four of those cities in the U.S. were in California. Um, so that is high um, expectation for your state. Um, that's high expectation for um, this area. Los Angeles City was one of the winners, as well as three communities almost side by side in the Bay Area, which was kind of interesting. Um, so there's going to be some really interesting analysis of what comes out of these communities. They are charged with basically identifying a chief resilience officer in communities and what that's going to look like, how that's going to be operationalized, whether they're going to sort of take into account these principles. These are the open questions that we are really grappling with over the next several years, but it's an exciting time for this topic. And that concludes my points that I wanted to raise today, and I hope uh, there are some questions and some discussion. Good evening. Um, we're going to open up to some questions. My name is David, and myself and my colleague, uh, Navina. We have the microphones, and we ask you to uh, raise your hand, and we'll come to you, and we'll start here. Thank you so much for such a beautifully laid out and presented um, introduction to these problems that are facing us. And I know in this part of the country world, we think of earthquakes, fires, that type of thing. But California may have a horrific problem, not only California, but the whole western part of the United States facing us with the drought. Um, they sh last week, I think on television, they showed a picture from last year, a satellite picture yeah. of the West Coast, and there was snow, and then they showed it this year, and there was no white at all. I mean, that is really frightening when you think so much of the drinking water, the crop water, everything comes from that area, and maybe some from other parts a little further east. It could come to pass, I heard on television this morning that some of the scientists are saying that we could be in a two decades drought and that this could be the worst drought in 500 years. Now, nobody really knows. We're not the Lord predicting. Mm -hmm. But if that were to happen, there's a huge population on the West Coast, all these people that would have to go someplace else unless we can rapidly and economically do desalinization. How would your program handle that? So that's an excellent question. And I think, you know, one piece is, you know, first and foremost, what are the sort of plans in place to prepare that po for that population displacement? We've got examples from other places where there has been movement of populations post-disaster. There are lessons from that about how you move populations successfully, uh, and we need to start thinking about planning for that. But second piece of this is, though, to think about what does that mean sort of for the economic base? What does that mean for kind of resources that are going to be pumped in from other places? Has that community or set of communities here um, been preparing for that potential? And that's really where the resilience conversation has been interesting because 
because it has moved it out of just discrete disasters, the usual hazards, the hurricanes, the earthquakes, and so on, and because it has looked at slow-moving disasters and acute sort of, and not just acute changes, we've been able to have that conversation about adaptation and sustainability, and thinking about what happens sort of the economic base if you have no water, if you have no commerce based on that water, and so on. So I think there's two pieces of it that you can really plan for that population displacement if you have large scale. It's going to be tough, but we know something about the health and social and economic impacts uh, and other events. We do know that when we've had like displaced populations from Katrina, which may certainly are not the magnitude that you're talking about, we know sort of what we need to put in place to support that population now. We know sort of how do you get people back on their feet in new places. What are the kinds of consequences that we need to look for that could befall that population? So we know some things about that. In terms of major migrations of populations of that size, I don't know that we have enough kind of information and data, but we certainly know what we need to put in place and what we need to consider when we have um, groups that have to move to other communities, reestablish um, routines, reestablish social networks. We do have that kind of information of what is best practice, what's promising practice. We have another question here. Yes, you mentioned the where to spend the funds. Do you spend it after the disaster? Do you spend it to uh, help prevent future disaster? And with some of the more recent ones, you've seen what's happened with coastal building. It's like you said, New York found out it certainly was a waterfront town. How do you educate the population that you don't build in a floodplain, you don't build on a coastal area that's hurricane-prone, particularly with global warming affecting sea levels? Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, I think we talk a lot about, and other areas of interest of mine, we mean we talk a lot about, about sort of financial literacy and other kinds of literacy that we wish our population had stronger. I don't think we have disaster literacy. I mean, we don't have people who sort of think about um, and really are educated as part of a matter of practice that we talk about sort of these issues. So it comes up in the acute event, and then we say, oh, goodness, we need to think about um, floodplain mitigation, other adaptation strategies. We need to think about our insurance programs, and people have ran have been looking at that. But we don't really have a wide-scale public education campaign. We don't sort of embed this into schools. We don't sort of embed this as part of our educational training programs. Um, so I think it has to start there. When we've looked globally at non-U.S. settings, um, they have really, many communities have taken on kind of risk preparedness, disaster preparedness as part of just general education. And so there are opportunities, I think, for us as a nation to do some of that as well. Now, I will say, um, we can only do so much to encourage people to think differently about where they live. And this is where the sort of ethical conversation is really interesting. Um, these are people's communities. These are their cultural roots. Um, what should be our requirement on a population to live in a certain place? What should be our incentives when it comes to insurance or benefits or rates or things like that? That becomes an interesting question as well. Um, what is our sort of our punitive measures versus our incentives, what is our expectation on a society, those are really interesting. But I do think beginning very young and thinking about our educational process, embedding this into the conversation because from my perspective, these are the same, and I was having some nice conversations with folks before this, these are the same principles that help kids be resourceful and think about kind of the up and down of life and thinking about what we call resilience mindset. It's the same and you, you can just augment it, really, in disaster response and recovery context. 
We have a question over here on your right. Um, thank you. Um, I look at the picture that you have up here on the slide and, and uh, all these uh, onlookers looking at the disaster, probably uh, who've never met each other. And, and I think the, the key um, phrase is, is community, which is what you're talking about, which I certainly agree with. But what I am curious about is how institutionally do you take a street, which is our urban version or suburban version of a community, which has not organized itself into a, a unit, and and get it organized to a unit. How how do you make that transition from an institutional standpoint? I mean, I think there are many interesting kind of approaches because even the LA campaign for the Community Resilience Project really had a whole sort of extended PSA about how neighborhoods come together and start to meet up and prepare their neighborhood plans. But but it does also require that there's sort of an organic piece of this, that there's an expectation that communities have to come together, that there are all sorts of tools that we can provide to, to create the structure, to put those plans together, to be more cohesive, to have integrated plans. But if we don't sort of have that kind of community dialogue and that fabric and that expectation, then the question becomes, how do we have some of our um, community-based organizations, our government agencies help to convene that? Um, and then what is our expectation on top of that? And I think that's an open question, which is why I sort of said that I think it's interesting now. Um, we sort of, people know the book Bowling Alone, and we've had sort of this conversation for about 20 years of kind of our individualistic spirit, and um, it's certainly something we pride ourselves on as Americans, but I think we're sort of seeing this pendulum swing back in terms of the reality is requiring us to connect in all sorts of ways, both virtually and together. But we, we have sort of the tools and the guidance to do it, but it has to also come from some sort of inherent incentive base that, that says this is an important value of a neighborhood and of a community, and this is our expectation. Question here in the middle. In Santa Monica, we have something called the Citizens Emergency Response Team. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Is it just here? or? <laughs> No, it's everywhere. CERT okay. teams are everywhere, and that's wonderful. Um, what the, the, the sort of challenge now for CERT teams, and, and there are CERT teams that are being challenged by this with the LA project, is to now think about the role of CERT to just be part of kind of community well-being development. These are people who are trained and expert in a lot of really critical ways. How are they folding that in to the between disaster experiences? Because everybody's gearing up for the emergency, not that we're like wanting it to happen, but you're sort of geared up and you're primed as first and second responders. How do you translate that to just being part of community processes um, and being that valuable asset in all the sort of well-being conversations and development conversations that we're having? But, but CERT is a definitely a national program. There's also a teen CERT, um, which is very exciting, and um, communities in the LA project are doing that um, as well. So there's all sorts of variation on the CERT program, but, but the adoption and uptake varies by community. Uh, we have a, another question over here on your left. Hi, I was struck by um, your your mentioning about the emotional well-being and also just the psychological factors that fall out from a disaster. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what some of those emotional issues are. And um, the other part of the question is, are there ways that you can galvanize people before a disaster so that they're they are they do have a resilient mindset 
It's near and dear to my heart, the emotional well-being topic. I mean, certainly when we've looked, and we have a lot of people at RAND who have studied the mental health consequences of disaster, I mean, we see a range of kind of impacts. I mean, we see everything from elevated anxiety symptoms to um, sort of elevations in depression and, in some cases, post-traumatic stress disorder. But also you see what happens in some, and, and certainly some of my colleagues who've done work post-Katrina, it wasn't the hurricane per se. But the hurricane sort of surfaced other kinds of experiences, stressors, and traumas that those communities had identified. So on one particular survey, the hurricane was actually third as the thing that was stressing them out at that time. But the death of a, a loved one, maybe not even Katrina-related, was being surfaced because of, once again, the exposure to a traumatic event. And so there's been a lot of work to think about, kind of not only trauma-based work, but how do you think about just society's exposure to traumatic experiences, disasters being one of them. So I think we're really learning a lot about how children respond, how adults respond, what happens during anniversary periods. And this is why I say the length of that psychological recovery is particularly interesting to look at and how long it really takes. But in terms of the front end piece, this is really important. And this is also a component piece of why resilience allows for a little bit of a broader conversation, is how do we think about embedding um, not only everything from stress management, but what does it mean to be emotionally well? Um, what are the five things that you do every day to make you feel not only kind of resilient to life's challenges, but emotionally well? Do we teach our kids? Do we teach our families? Do we teach our households that? Is that part of our emotional literacy? That really hasn't been part of the conversation as much as it should, but it has been part of the conversation of our resilience work. And then concretely, um, what we are doing in um, L.A., but in also other places, is training more people in psychological first aid um, and sometimes corollaries called mental health first aid, which helps people really get the skills to how to talk to each other when there are experiences of distress. And what we found is actually people have been trained at sort of formal mental health providers get trained in psychological first aid or first responders. We're starting to train sort of secondary responders, surge responders, and seeing that they can actually do some of the things around psychological distress that may have been only resigned to formal mental health providers. So that helps to get it, these concepts pushed out into the general public so that we can rely also on informal networks and sort of addressing those issues. But that's, that's part of this is kind of getting people into this cycle and this ebb and flow of risk and resilience means sort of conditioning your brain for some of this conversation and embedding it in a lot of our community processes. Question on the right. I was curious about these 16 different communities yeah. that you chose in Los Angeles, half preparedness, half resilient, and also in relation to the idea of an organic resilience, the question being how did you choose these communities and what signs did you perhaps already see there that suggested to you that well, this community over here has more organic, if you will, resilience than another. And also, what was the uh, variance regarding social demographics and ethnic makeup and all those kind of things? Yeah. 
So this is, um, for people who are sort of familiar in kind of the research world, that we are not doing a comparative effectiveness analysis at this point. This is really sort of an organic kind of demonstration analysis, which means that each of the communities are really different. We're allowing these processes to unfold in really unique ways and tracking that. So there's some core principles of resilience that we want them to hit, particularly those four levers, and they have sort of access to the tools. But we're watching these, and I just wanted to say that at the outset, we're watching sort of how they approach resilience development, what partners they bring to the table, how they kind of embed, what do they prioritize. And so that's allowing for some interesting variation just at the kind of resilience application level. But we did choose communities based on a kind of a set of criteria. Uh, it was purposeful because this is a preliminary project and we needed communities to be in a certain kind of place. Um, we, we kind of put these communities on kind of cold, warm, hot. Sometimes people use these kind of terms for selecting communities. Warm really meant we wanted to pick warm communities. Hot communities were like too sophisticated. Um, we didn't want to sort of, we didn't feel like we could move the needle as, not, as much. But warm communities at least had some kind of community organizing team, coalition, neighborhood association that could be sort of a centralizing convener for these discussions. It didn't have to be a community emergency response team or a community preparedness coalition, but they had to have something. Um, we also wanted to pick communities of pretty comparable size in terms of, of resident numbers. So we picked communities that are sort of in the 35,000 to 50,000 size. We felt that was manageable for a host of reasons. Um, we wanted communities with varying risk profiles in terms of what kinds of things they're most concerned about. And, but So we had variation on that dimension. And we had a lot of variation in terms of rural-urban mix. So we wanted to make sure we varied that as well. So we have actually probably more variation than not, but we wanted to at least make sure they were warm communities and they were comparable in size. So that um, was part of our decision. The other piece is that we wanted geographic spread. So we picked um, a resilience community and a preparedness community in each of the spas in L.A. County so that we could make sure that we represent the range of sociodemographic characteristics, um, urbanicity characteristics, but also kind of how their service systems or organized. But the, you'll see, and I'm happy to provide the list of the communities that we're in, I mean, the coalitions are very different. What they're planning to do is very different. So we're really in a very much an exploratory process. We know that there's a lot of resilience conversations happening at the federal policy level. There are new policy directives. So insofar as we can guard against some of that, I mean, the communities are going to do what communities are going to do. So they may have some resilience elements, but the beauty of this project is we're doing a lot of what we call process evaluation. So we're tracking um, those component pieces to see, well, did the community ultimately just sort of organically shift um, to resilience and what can we say about that? Um, and we're using all different kinds of things. So we're tracking partnerships with a tool. We are doing surveys at the household and at the organizational level. We're developing a resilience tabletop exercise. So we're going to be able to stress different networks and see kind of how they, they take to some of these principles of resilience. Um, so it is very, it's definitely a messy project, but, um, but that's, that's sort of what guided our decisions. So uh, it looks like we're kind of winding down here. Uh, and so this might maybe our last question here. We've got one in the middle. To take from the theoretical, which we've, you've very well laid out, to the practical, you mentioned embedding and relationships that interconnectedness. In terms of embedding, how do we get down to embedding when we cannot agree at all on the existence or non-existence of climate change or the existence or not non-existence of drought? And number two, 
and the interconnectedness thing, are you concerned at all and how do we get over? We seem to be moving away from interconnectedness. As you even said, everybody's got their head buried in their cell phones or their iPad. Nobody talks to each other mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the climate change is an interesting conversation point, and I certainly say different things in different parts of the country sometimes um, in terms of how I term <laughs> um, climate change. But I can, I can definitely enter the conversation by talking about sea level rise. I can enter the conversation in terms of changes in precipitation. So we can have the conversation about climate change, whether or not we're terming it climate change. And so that has um, been very interesting because people are trying to figure out how are we actually addressing what we call slow-moving disaster. And that has actually brought people together across political spectrum than if I was having a climate change conversation. So we're actually having it in places that you might not expect. Uh, but in terms of the interconnectedness, I think that necessity is breeding a lot of interconnectedness because at the organizational level, government or non-government, we're seeing it because um, not only because funding has diminished, but because people really recognize that they have to blend assets in order to be effective in kind of the new social policy and civic policy discussion. And at the, um, the person level, I think there's a new conversation about social connectedness. I, I, I'm, I've sort of opined about this, but I do think there's a new conversation about how people relate. There's, in some ways, a different kind of intimacy in those relationships based on the sort of virtual smartphone, but one would argue that qualitatively there could be actually some stronger social connections that people are having to leverage um, in order to kind of create community for themselves. So there are lots of, there are lots of kind of interesting pieces of this, but um, I think we're going to be forced into a more of a conversation about interconnectedness in the network actually because of technology um, than we have before. So that's why it's, I think, an interesting time. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.